Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Twice per year since February of 1959, NASCAR stock cars have been circling Daytona International Speedway at record speed, taking to the track's 31-degree banking at 200 miles per hour in multiple packs. It's NASCAR's most prestigious racetrack and has been since day one. When drivers saw it for the very first time, they simply didn't know what to think. It was huge, like mega do I want to race here huge, bigger than anything I've ever seen huge, scared to death huge, so huge that some questioned their sanity about racing around the place for 200 laps. Some drivers, such as Lee Petty, Johnny Beauchamp, Joe Weatherly, Curtis Turner, and Fireball Roberts, to name a few, threw caution to the wind and faced the monster head on sore drawn ready to face whatever came their way petty won the first race even though it took four days to receive his trophy and his check after a photo finish over bochamp as predicted many other great wins followed throughout the years such as in 1963 when tiny lund replaced the injured marvin patch In 1969, when Leroy Yarborough was NASCAR's first Triple Crown winner. 1975, when Benny Parsons was the surprise winner when David Pearson spun. 1976, when Pearson won over Richard Petty when they crashed at the checkered flag. 1979, when Bobby Allison, Donnie Allison, and Kale Yarborough fought at the end of the race and put NASCAR on the map. 1981, when Richard Petty won his seventh Daytona 500 over Bobby Allison. 1985, when Bill Elliott won the 500 en route to winning the Winston Million that year. 1986, when Dale Earnhardt overshot his pit on pit road and Jeff Bodine went on to win the 500. 1998, when Earnhardt finally won the 500 after 20 years of hard luck. And in 2004 and 2014, when Dale Earnhardt Jr. won two Daytona 500s in his career, and some drivers only won one win in NASCAR competition, and they came in the Daytona 500. Those drivers were Mario Andretti, Trevor Bain, and Michael McDowell. Then there are those that are superhuman, such as Richard Petty, the winner of seven Daytona 500s, those coming in 1964, 66, 71, 73, 74, 79, and 1981. That's a record that most likely will never be broken. There was only one driver that came close, and that was Kale Yarborough in 1968, 1977, 1983, and 1984 for his four victories in the 500. What began as a dream on a cocktail napkin in 1949 for NASCAR founder Bill France Sr. 
came to fruition in 1959 and 64 years later is still known as the World Center of Racing. So what is the Daytona 500 at the Daytona International Speedway? Let's call it the greatest auto race in the world. Welcome back to a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this week's episode. And uh, it's going to be tough to top what we did last week. Last week was a milestone episode of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. It was number 50. And now we start a brand new, brand new 50, I guess you might say, with episode number 51. And this is also going to be a very unique uh, episode as well, too, because we're going to be talking about the greatest race there is in stock car racing. That's the Daytona 500. And we have got so many stories to talk about over the years. I mean, you could write a probably an encyclopedia worth of all the various stories that have been compiled over the years in the Daytona 500. And of course, those of you who uh, you may wonder when it is, it's this Sunday, February 20th down in Daytona. I think it starts at 2.30 Eastern, if I can remember correctly, and on Fox, and it's going to be a big one. And Here's the other thing, Ben, I wanted to you know, kick off the show before we even go any further. Found out this morning when we were taping this on Monday morning that the, sh- the race is a complete sellout. Complete. I mean, mm-hmm. when was the last time we had a complete sellout at Daytona? I, it's been probably, I'm going to guess maybe five years, maybe, maybe six. I mean, it's been a while. So it's good to see that the race is completely sold out. What are your thoughts about just in general, you know, the fact that this is number, what is this, number 64, I think it is, of the Daytona 500, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I'll tell you what, Jerry, you know, uh, 1959 Daytona 500, that was the first time that uh, the stock cars went to the Daytona International Speedway. And I remember hearing Lee Petty and Richard Petty both say that when they went through that tunnel going into the racetrack back in 1959 and looked up and said it's the biggest monster they'd ever seen in their life. Because, you know, back in those days, other than the night, the uh, Southern 500 at Darlington, the Darlington Raceway that was back then 1.25 mile uh, miles in length, and it was uh, later on uh, extended to 1.366 miles at Darlington. Mm-hmm. That track, and then of course the Raleigh Speedway was just a mile in length, the same size as Dover. Uh, that was really the only two racetracks that those uh, guys had raced on as far as super speedways were. So if you can imagine. Daytona International International Speedway was double in size plus another half mile and said it was a complete monster to look at and think, holy cow, we're going to be racing on this thing. Uh, single cars trying to get up to speed and then we're going to race what uh, I don't remember how many cars are in that field. I think it was like 50 cars in that first one. Mm-hmm. And my Lord, I mean, it was just the biggest thing they'd ever seen. And And as Lee Petty said, you know, I'm just as good as anybody on this track because nobody else has been on it. You know, <laughs> and uh, so we're all starting off at scratch, right? Right. And it was just a huge racetrack. I mean, you say it was just a mammoth, mammoth racetrack, huge place. And uh, as it turned out, of course, uh, Lee Petty won the 1959 Daytona 500 in a photo finish against uh, Johnny Bochamp. And of course, uh, the photo shows that uh, Lee uh, Joe Weatherly was in that same photo, but he was a lap down. But all three cars went across the line uh, at the same time, and and uh, Lee Petty ended up winning it. But Joe uh, Johnny Bochamp went to victory lane and got the kiss and the trophy and all that. And you know, I think 
Bill France Sr. knew what he was doing. I think they sort of knew pretty close to time uh, right after the race was over. But yeah, they could have put, you know, I think they sort of put their cards to their vest and said, well, we can get at least three or four more days of, of news coverage out of this. And they did. And then uh, Lee Petty ended up getting the winner's trophy in his living room in Level Cross. But they they, they played out uh, the story and, and they got the, you know, everybody hyped up about who won the race. And of course, uh, uh, photo finish. And it took them a few days to figure it out. But that's that's the very first Daytona 500. We've got just a, a bunch of, of, of people that have won the race uh, over 60, what, three years, 63 years now. Right. I, I got to ask you a question, Ben, and I, I don't know the answer to this one, you know, and I, and I, you know, I've, I've tried to pride myself on my knowledge of NASCAR, but maybe you have an answer to this one. So before the Daytona International Speedway, there was the Daytona Beach and Road Course, and that was a, you know, depending upon, I know there were two different links. There was a three-mile track, four-mile track, roughly. Mm-hmm. How did Bill France Sr., when he conceived the idea of Daytona International Speedway, how did he conceive it to be 2.5 miles in length? I mean, like you had said a moment ago, there never really had been a trek of that particular length. Now, of course, the beach and road course, well, that was three or four miles, but that was a different, whole different um, you know, uh, uh, race course, if you will. How did he come upon two and a half miles? I mean, I've, I've often wondered about that. Well, I think it all goes back to a story I can share with you about North Wilkesboro. When mm-hmm. Gwen, Gwen Staley built that racetrack, the guy with the bulldozer said, how much money do you have? And he said, I've got this X amount of dollars. He said, well, that will buy you this much track. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> the way it worked. And he said, that that will get you this foot much straightaway, and that will get you this much turns. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what I think what happened with Daytona. But, you know, you got to think about it. Uh, Bill France Sr. sort of had Daytona in his mind for, it took about 10 years to put that together. And you start thinking about the land that you had to get and the the permits that you had to get. And, oh my gosh, it was a long, long journey to get from the napkins on, on the, on the bar stool, so to speak, to, to actually cutting the ribbon in Daytona. And he had to have a lot of help. And, you know, there was a soft drink manufacturer too. Mm-hmm. Very prominent, let's say that, uh, that also helped put some money into that venture and some other investors in Daytona Beach put some money into that venture. Eventually, uh, Mr. France, uh, you know, saw his way to to buy other people out. And, and as time would have it, they, of course, uh, he would become the sole owner of, of Daytona International Speedway. And then it went into, you know, ISC Corporation later on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there was a lot of folks involved in that. And and there were several times that they thought maybe this is just not going to happen. It's just too big of, a, of a, a problem, not really a problem, but a big venture, too big a venture. Let's say it that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that, to answer your question, I think that's what it was. It just came down, simply came down to money. Uh, you know, 2.5, I think was a good number in his mind when he drove that off to say this is the size of a speedway, what a, a speedway should be. Of course, Darlington, as I said, and Raleigh had already been built, but that mm-hmm. was sort of the way to say, okay, that's what you have. This is this is the ultimate dream, the ultimate size, what a, sh- a speedway should be. Now, with that said, uh, Augusta International Raceway was a road course mm-hmm. that was, I think, 4.1 miles, but it was a road course. He was trying to get something of a 
mammoth high bank super speedway to end all super speedways. That was what he wanted to do. And that was the number in his mind to think this is what would be the, the ultimate track. As I say that in 1969, of course, Talladega come into the picture at mm-hmm. 2.66 miles. So right. it's slightly different, slightly bigger than what Daytona was. <clears throat> Pardon me. And so, uh, I guess he saw Daytona and said, well, I can do that a little bit better. <laughs> that's how, I guess, how, how, how Daytona came, or how uh, Talladega came into play. Right. Well, I, I've got to ask you this about Daytona. And we're talking apples and oranges here in terms of the types of racetrack. But was Bill France Sr.'s um, mindset perhaps uh, in line by having the length that he had at Daytona in line with Indianapolis Motor Speedway, because that's also 2.5 miles, but it doesn't have the high banks. You know, it's, it's essentially a, a true oval as opposed to a tri-oval. I mean, what are your thoughts about, uh, was he trying to, if not one up the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, at least be the equal in length, just a different type of size though. I mean, a different kind of, of uh, layout rather, I should say. Well, that's, that's a really good point, Jerry. And, uh, it could have been that way, uh, you know, to to maybe equal them, and and that could have been part of the reason, part of the thinking of Talladega, mm-hmm. also to say, I want the biggest racetrack. I want right. to be just slightly bigger than what Indianapolis was or is. And uh, yeah, that's a that's a great point. But I think he wanted something with high banks and and something that could really generate speed. Even though, having said that, of course, Indianapolis would generate speed as well. Just wanted to have something unique with high banks and a trioval and just something bigger and badder than anything on earth. And that he definitely accomplished that, but it took a long time to put all the pieces together. And then it did come together. The, the gates opened, of course, in February of 1959. And, and what was so unique about that era is that, of course, we had newspapers mm-hmm. uh, uh, at the height of their uh, existence back in those days where Back in in Daytona, I mean, you might have coverage of races in those days where it might be when in two weeks, and that's where Speed Weeks comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. might have uh, qualifying. I remember very well where you'd have qualifying first day qualifying and second round qualifying, and you might not have but ten cars in second second day qualifying. You remember those days too, yep. I'm sure. Yep. Where you know you just drag this out and drag this out and drag it out, and back. But even before you and I were dry, uh, uh, writing about motorsports, back in the early '60s, they would they might have seven, eight cars qualify, at, say at Darlington, mm-hmm. and then the next day it'd be seven or eight cars, and the next day seven or eight cars. And the whole reason they did that was to get more ink in newspapers and right. to get more stories in newspaper, more hype, more hype, more hype. That's exactly why they did it, and uh, and so again, Speed Weeks was about. Uh, getting as much ink in newspapers, as much hype leading up to the Daytona 500 as possible. And, uh, and, and to a degree that we still have that. I mean, we still with the uh, Daytona Beach uh, News Journal down there. I mean, they, every day you can see something going on leading up to the 500, all types of features and all types of race coverage. And, and this has been going on uh, since 1959 when that first race started. But that's the thing Bill France was smart about is getting as much coverage in the newspapers as possible to uh, to get fans to read and 
and get all hyped up about, you know, who's going to win the poll and who's going to be on the outside front row. And that's where all those 100 and what was once 125 mile qualifying mm-hmm. races in, in all, in all honesty, I mean, they really were, uh, not necessary really yeah. as yeah. far as qualifying goes, but the reason they were created was more ink and more hype. And then they were changed to 150 mile races several years ago, but that's exactly what it is. And some of those teams and drivers, dread going into those races for fear they're going to tear up their equipment yeah right right, but that's exactly why it's because it was about uh, even in the very early days 1959 up about getting more hype and more ink in newspapers that's what it's all about i I gotta ask you this ben and this is this is something that no one's really has seemed to be talking about this you know either last week even before the the um, the Bud Light clash out in Los Angeles, not to, since then, uh, you know, we had it a week ago. We haven't heard really said it, heard anything much. You know, historically, Speed Weeks has always been two weeks or you know, week and a half, depending on you know each year. This year, Speed Weeks is now Speed Week, but actually, it's only half a Speed Week. You know what I mean, <laughs> yeah. and I, I have to question especially with the new car making this, you know, official super speedway debut uh, at the 500. I mean, we obviously we saw it at the Bud Light Clash, but that was a non-points race. And this is obviously the the big daddy of all NASCAR races, the Daytona 500. What does this mean, let's say, down the road? What are we going to see? And I know this year was a very unique situation because the Super Bowl was played later than it's ever been played. Um, I have to wonder, though, if NASCAR, you know, and the teams, especially who, you know, they, they become very um, prudent about financial uh, limitations and, you know, spending as much, as little as they possibly can. I have to wonder though, if we really see a good half a week, if you will, this week or this year, will that, essentially change speed weeks forever and we may never see a two or even a one and a half week speed weeks we may only see you know uh a week at most maybe only a half a week like we're seeing this year what what are your thoughts about that well it it is possible uh you know it's it's gotten slimmer as we go but uh Mm -hmm. i I don't know i mean i think everything has changed with newspaper coverage and and internet coverage and things are so spot on now when things happen it happens immediately you get Mm -hmm. stories immediately all that's happened but you know for so many years i go go back to this and how i talk about the hype and I've, i've talked about it before but i mean going into the 559 69 79 89 99 all these years for all for 63 years going into the 500 it's just been such an exciting time for fans to to jump on board and see what the 500 is about because you know it's it, for so many years it was just not a lot talked about between one season to the next until you got into the 500 mm-hmm. and so yeah pardon me it's um it's going to be it's different but we just i just love to think back to all those times when you didn't have a lot of news and then suddenly it's the time for the 500 and those two weeks would pop up and suddenly you're bombarded with all this information 
and all these things to talk about drivers and teams and cars and mm-hmm. new paint schemes and all that. That's that was the fun of Daytona for for decades and decades. And uh, it's still I still feel that I still you know I'm uh, Daytona is Daytona and that's it is the greatest race of, of stock car racing in the world and I still feel that excitement and I'm I'm excited you know for this time. I'd like to see or like to think that you know we are going to see speed weeks some semblance of it return uh you know in 2023 i haven't looked at the calendar i don't know when the super bowl is going to fall or anything like that uh, i know we talked um, you know uh, last week about the or actually the last two weeks we've talked about the uh, bud light clash what's going to mean for that is it going to come back to the la coliseum is it going to be still a um, you know, will it still be an exhibition race? Could it potentially be added to the regular season schedule right after Daytona when we have the first uh, three race West Coast swing? A lot of questions still remain to be answered. But, you know, I, I honestly, I agree with you about the media coverage over the years. It did get people excited, you know, people that, you know, both that did come down to Daytona for the race to get out of the cold winter and those that, you know, couldn't go down there. But, you know, being watching the race did help warm them up a little bit. My fear, though, is that, you know, will we potentially see as a result of what happened this year with the clash and, you know, the Super Bowl coming in between, will we, you know, go back to or will we go to only a maximum of a one week speed week, you know, as opposed to speed weeks. So I guess we'll have to see how NASCAR is going to play that. But, you know, I think that given like you said, the the um, abundance of media coverage we used to have compared to the decline in media coverage we've had you know, over the last 10, 15, 20 years almost, um, that it almost makes you wonder, do we really need to have two weeks? You know, can we get get by with only one week because there are so so many fewer outlets to report? I mean, other than, you know, uh, the Associated Press, Motorsport.com. Uh, racer.com and a few other uh, publications and or websites there really is not that you know large um, media influx and you know the other thing too is a lot of uh, particularly newspapers just really can't afford to send their writers if there even are dedicated motorsports writers to Daytona because it's a pretty costly uh, thing so you know I, I'm hoping for the best I'd love to see even if it's a full one week of speed weeks, you know, or speed week, uh, I keep on saying plural, but I mean, you know, I mean this in a singular fashion where maybe we would start on that Monday, um, you know, the day after the Super Bowl, and we would continue on, I guess we'll just have to see how this is going to play out. But I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to be bullish upon, you know, where, where we go with all this, because I think that, you know, especially with a sold out race for, you know, the coming up here on, on uh, February 20th, it means a lot. But, you know, we, we've got a lot to talk about Daytona and its history, a lot, a lot of stories we can talk about, and we, we're definitely going to hit uh, some of those. But we're going to do a, just a little bit of a juggling around today. We're going to talk about episode 51, and as you all know, we always tie the episode number into a car number. And this week, obviously, is car number 51 for episode 51, and you know, kind of like with some of the other um, numbers we've gone through over the last, oh, probably two and a half, three months, this one kind of surprised me as well. 51, even though it's had a lot of different drivers, it hasn't really had a lot of success when it comes to going to victory lane. Tell us about that, Ben. 
No, that's true, Jerry. And you know, there was a guy from Georgia that was very, very prominent in his driving career in the early fifties named Gover Sosby. And you talk, if you go up to Dawsonville and you go up where uh, Bill Elliott country is and chase Elliott country, everybody up that way knows who he is. Uh, but he did have two victories uh, in the NASCAR grand national strictly stock era, which is now the cup series. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on June 1st, 1951, and this is what I loved about this. We talked to this about this previously, you and I did. There are two racetracks that I looked and looked for, and I could not find a state or city for, but I still, this is what I love about racing. They just listed these on uh, a website called driver averages, which we use a lot. We appreciate their efforts mm-hmm. to, to help us out here, but. One of the, the tracks, June 1st, 1951, uh, for Gober Sosby. Now, I love the name of this racetrack. It is the greatest name of all time, Hayloft Speedway. How could you come <laughs> up with a better one than that? Exactly. He led 154 of 154 laps. So he took the green flag, led every lap. Now, visualize this. And I, you know, and this is my mind when I, when I saw the name of this, I saw, you know, a barn. Uh, obviously with a hayloft and it has hay in it, I guess <laughs> right. somebody had a tractor with a scoop on it, I imagine. And they cut out this quarter mile racetrack and, you know, I guess the size of LA Coliseum, just no Coliseum and no, <laughs> right, no hype, right. <laughs> just right, right, the right. track. Right. right. And, uh, possibly had to move the cows out of the way. I imagine another, <laughs> another fence in that area there, all the cows, I'm sure were watching the race from their vantage point, right. but it's hayloft speedway. And he won, uh, I don't know how much, I imagine $500 or $1,000 if it was a good day. And uh, so he, he won that race in 1951, June 1st. And then the second time, number 51, took the checkered flag was April 21st, 1954 at, guess where this was, Central Center Speedway. Now, Central where? Center of what? <laughs> I don't know. But that was a 200-lap race, and he, and he led 58 laps. So, and both of those times, he was driving an Oldsmobile. Let's throw that in. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I he can't be the good old-fashioned pasture racing. And, and just so you'll know, a lot of these races in the early, like in the 40s, well, let's go back before NASCAR was formed in 1948, 40, right after World War II, 46, 47. Right. Uh, these, a lot of these guys were, they'd have the Buicks and the Olds and the Fords. And they say, well, my Ford will outrun your Olds. I don't think so. And they go on Sunday afternoon after church and they find this pasture. This is true right. stuff. Right. Right. And they right. would, they would, if they didn't have something to cut out a racetrack, they say, well, go to the Oak tree. And before you get to the Oak tree, we'll put a stop or whatever. And we'll race around that stop. We'll come down here and race around this one, or maybe better yet, we'll just race around this oak tree mm-hmm. and we'll get somebody to write down the number of laps. Let's make a hundred laps and we'll put our money on the barrel head and whoever wins the race gets the money. I mean, this is as elementary as it gets, but that's the way they did it. Right. And so that's what led to uh, what we have today as far as cup series, NASCAR cup series racing. But a lot of these guys who had the Fords and the Olds and the Plumas and the Dodges, whatever, were moonshiners. And they would, you know, these are the best of the best who would outrun the revenuers and, and the moonshine or moonlight. That's why they called it moonshine. You're right. And right. so for this is your, your moonshine 101 education in about a minute. <laughs> but, but that's how it happened. And so uh, this is when you have these places like Hayloft Speedway and it was somebody's backyard pasture 
that somebody talks somebody into doing it and said, can we borrow your pastor Sunday after? Yeah, sure. Whatever. Right. And so this is how these things happen. So there you go. But good old Go- Gober, not Goober, but Gober Sosby, who uh, was, and he, he ran quite a few NASCAR races uh, and was, was successful in various numbers, but he did take number 51 to victory lane twice. So there you go. Well, here I've got some I got some breaking news for you because I did a little digging on a couple other uh, um, resources that I that I uh, like to look at. So let me go back. I'm going to back up. I'm going to go first with Central um, uh, 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 Central Center Speedway. It's actually Central City Speedway. It was in Macon, Georgia. Uh, it looks that makes like, sense because he was from Georgia. Okay, right. And, and it looks like they raced one, two, three, four, five, six, seven races there from 1951 to 1954. Gober indeed won in 1954. Here's a couple of the guy, other guys that won. Herb Thomas won there twice. Lee Petty won there in 1952. Dick Rathman in 53. Speedy Thompson in 53. Gober Sosby in 54. And then the last race. Also in 1954, last NASCAR race that was held there was by Herschel McGriff. Now, I got another breaking story for you here. Hang on. All right, let me, lay it let me, on me. All right, let me go back to you. I, I, that, you know, that's got to be one of the most unique. Well, wait a minute. Hold on a second here. Now, I like Hayloft Speedway, but I just came across. How about Dog Track Speedway? I just come across this. Mayock, yeah. North Carolina. That's another right, uh, interesting yeah. name. So, but all right. So, Hayloft Speedway is out of Augusta, Georgia, and it was around for, get this, one year. 1952 oh. and that was okay. the one year that gober won the race and um it, you know he uh, his purse was 33 35 75 so um yeah that was 1952 uh, to uh, june 1st of 1952 so that's um you, you made some good choices there. i really enjoy those i mean yeah, too bad they're not around anymore but you know it is what it is though so well but. it does make sense because he was from georgia and if both of those tracks are making in augusta so hey Makes all the sense in the world. And exactly. you know, my my reference said June one of fifty one, and you're saying June one of fifty two. So hey, it could have. That's great. That could have been either one. But if you uh, look at racing reference. You're right. I mean, it it did say fifty one originally, but then if you look at the race itself, it does say fifty two. So okay, they, they, they kind of they kind of made him. Well, I'm not going to say a mistake. It was just it's a it was a, some kind of an error. But but you know, before we got we got to get into Daytona 500 history. But I want to talk about the fifty one also. Now you know you mentioned about how uh, you know Gober Sosby won the first race in fifty. 52 rather in the number 51 car and then um you know he won in uh, 54 at central city speedway in, in uh, macon but you know you look at the names of guys who've driven the 51 there's a pretty a pretty good list of, of guys who've been in there justin allgaier 75 starts in the 51 and then of course you had gober sosby cody ware greg Sachs, uh hut strickland was one of those guys reed Sorensen. Jim Vandiver, Cecil Gordon, Donald Thomas, who was the brother of Herb Thomas, David Rudiman, A.J. Foyt drove the 51 at one point, Johnny Rutherford, Bill Champion, Michael Waltrip, Boris Said, Lenny Pond, Austin Dillon, Kurt Busch, and Jeff Purvis. So yeah. a lot of different names in there. Yeah, just just a few of those. I mean, it, there's a lot of drivers who have handled the or driven the number 51. But, yeah, there's some of the more prominent names that one, a couple that just stuck out to me, Johnny Rutherford did run some cup series events early mm-hmm. in his career before moving over to, uh, uh, the open wheel IndyCar series. Of course he won, uh, the Indy 500 there. And, uh, uh, you know, Jim Vandiver is a stock car, uh, 
kind of a back marker guy, but he, he ran many years uh, in, the, in the Cup Series. That was another one. Cecil Gordon uh, ran the Cup Series many years before becoming a crew member uh, for uh, Richard Childress. He was also a crew chief for uh, uh, several teams. Uh, and also, there's a story I want to share with you about the number 51. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, a driver, uh, Greg Sachs, I'm sure you remember him. Right, right, right he, right. he actually drove the number 51. He bought a car from Harry Rainier that Cale Yarborough drove in the Daytona 500. I believe in one in the Daytona 500, 1984. That Kale drove number 28. Of course, it was the Orange Hardy's car. Mm-hmm. And then in 85, when they changed to Fords and continued the Hardy sponsorship, well, Greg ran the, that, the car that he won the 84 Daytona 500 in with number 51 on the sides of this car. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he ran the car for, I don't know how many races, 17, 18, 19 races. Well, as time went on, if you remember, that uh, he drove a white and black a number 10 car for Digard and won <laughs> the 400-mile race at Daytona. Right. Well, that was the car that he originally bought from Kale Yarborough. They still had the orange inside the car, mm-hmm. and but he had number 10 on it. Well, they changed the number from 51 to 10. He goes to Daytona with Diegard, wins the race. <laughs> and this is the same race that all the Diegard guys who were pitting the car for Bobby Allison. Bobby comes in for a pit stop, and there's nobody to service his car. <laughs> they're, they're all over there helping the number 10 car. And Bobby told me one time, he said, well, this is when I decided that maybe it was time for me to look for another ride. <laughs> because... <laughs> I didn't have anybody in my pits. Nobody. I came in for a pit stop to get tires and I looked around and it's like nobody there. Nobody. That, that has got to be the spookiest thing. Yeah. You come into pits and there's nobody there. That is unbelievable. Yeah. And this, yeah, and this is in the, uh, this is in the firecracker 400 race. And, and so that's the race that, that Greg Sachs went on to win. That was his only victory, but it was the car, the same car that he ran number 51 on. It was the car that that Dygard, I guess, bought from him, or it was still Greg's car, and they fielded it through Dygard. <laughs> but, but they had um, number ten on the car, and of course, that's the race he won. But Bobby's like, "Here I am in the pits, and nobody's here. <laughs> everybody, everybody's down at the number ten pit. Everybody." And that's so probably, he, that was that was probably before uh, the era of radios. What I I wouldn't be surprised, right? Uh, I think they I think they did have yeah I think they did have radios in them. Well, well who was lit, who was manning the radio? Yeah. Hello. So this was the eighty this was the eighty five firecracker. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Yeah, and so not long after that, a race or two or three after that, of course, Bobby takes the Miller Beer sponsorship to his own team back to Hueytown, and he runs right. Fords. But he that's the that's when he quit Diegard. He won the championship with Diegard in '83, and ran in '84, won the 600, '84, and a couple of other races. But '85 things had deteriorated so badly. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't know what the whole story was. But when you pull in your pits and you decide, okay, it's time for four tires and fuel, and there's nobody to do it, <laughs> you know. And now went to now Wendell Scott did actually get out of his car and change his own tires and get back in his car and race, but that's a different, a whole different story. Oh wow! But, you know he, you know that Bobby's like, okay, this is not working out, and it's time for me to, you know, to. I don't know if he parked. I guess he parked the car at that point because he had no help. 
But uh, yeah, things had deteriorated badly enough that it was time to move on. And he did. And like I said, fielded his own forwards the rest of the season. But that put back to my original statement. That was the car that had carried 51 on it. Mm-hmm. And then he, uh, and it was an original Kel Yarbrough Daytona 500 winning car. And when they switched to Fords, then he bought the car and he fielded it out of his shop, which ironically, another little tidbit was about a mile or so from the, where Richard Childress's shops are in welcome. Mm-hmm. The reason I know that when writing for the Lexington dispatch in 1985, I would just go up and hang out with this, with those guys. Uh, you know, Greg Sachs and Cecil Gordon was uh-huh. their was their crew chief, right, right. And uh, for Greg Sachs and his brother and a couple other guys that worked for the team. So I just go up and sometimes I would fiddle around with some of the race cars too, just kind of help them out. It was a very <laughs> low budget setup, and uh, so that was 1985. So yeah, I mean I didn't get paid or anything. I just helped them turn wrenches from time to time and right. hung out more than anything. So. That's that's actually good. could be a good, a good title for a book. It just hung out and turned wrenches from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was writing I was writing articles for Lexington, and then I would go up and turn wrenches at night just for just because I could. Just because he could. That's right. And exactly. my apartment my apartment wasn't very far from the shop, so I just loved to go up and hang out with them. You know, Cecil was a longtime friend before that, anyway, and I right. just. Anyway, I'm getting off the beaten path here, but it was just a lot of fun to hang out with those guys. Exactly. Well, let's talk about a lot of fun in Central Florida, Daytona International Speedway, uh, the Daytona 500. Of course, it's coming up this uh, Sunday, February 20th of 2022, the 64th edition of the Great American Race. And we have got so many stories we can go. We could probably go three, four, five hours if we if we uh, had the ability. But we're going to talk some of the, the greatest races and some of the stories behind them. And I guess the best place to start off with, <coughs> excuse me is 1959 the first race ever held at the brand new track correct me if i'm wrong because I, I wanted to we were talking about this a, a few moments ago but i forgot to ask this of you correct me if i'm wrong but the speedway itself was finished but wasn't part of the like the seating area or something i seem to recall that part of the overall project was not completed by that first race am i right about that well i think there were some parts of the of the seating that maybe weren't, I mean, it was, you got to remember, I mean, it was, uh, they were, they were thrashing like any other project right. people in the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, now Charlotte motor speedway, when they first opened some of the asphalt there had not cured. And by the time the race by 600 miles, they had potholes all in the, on the <laughs> speedway right, right, that, right, that right. happened. Right. I don't recall. I think they were pretty well ready to go at Daytona. Uh, but there might have been some areas of the racetrack that weren't quite ready. But okay. uh, yeah, but like anything, I mean, some of the paint I'm sure wasn't quite dry, and uh, you know, some of the fencing still needed to be done. I, I know some of the fencing at Atlanta when they first started, uh, they still needed to put fencing up the day at the morning of the race uh, at the first race in Atlanta mm-hmm. in sixty, I believe sixty one. Right. So anytime you got something that big, you, yeah, you're still you know taking tickets in one hand and nailing nails in the other <laughs> kind That's of thing. Right. So yeah, it's yeah, but I think they, Daytona was pretty pretty well done. Yeah. Now Lee Petty winning the first race. I mean, that was it was almost like a storybook 
scripted. It was kind of scripted almost in, in the sense that, you know, he was one of the biggest names around at the time. Uh, and, of course, you know, he was the, uh, you know, the, the scion, if you will, of the petty legacy. And then, of course, Richard came along and, you know, just made that name even more synonymous with NASCAR. But and I know you I don't even were you even born in 59 or you were born no. in 60, weren't you? I was born in 60. That's yeah. what I thought. Yeah. So, I mean, from what you've seen, what on video, what you've read of that race, is there anything that stands out about Lee Petty's win in that race? Uh, well, the Johnny Bochamp thing, that's another thing we, we should probably mention a little bit more about that, because that was, you know, even though Bill France Sr. did, to his credit, really, um I, I hate to use this word, but he did milk the publicity for several days as they decided try to figure out who actually won the race. And I mean, first it was Johnny Bochamp, like you said, that went to victory lane, got the kiss. But then as it turned out, Lee Petty was actually credited with the win. I think it was three or four days later or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, tell me about that race. I mean, in, in, in NASCAR history, where does that race kind of rank just because of all the other elements that were involved in it? I mean, the, the longest race, I mean, the, you know, the largest racetrack to that point, uh, you know, the, the first race ever on that kind of a track, it was, you know, everything was brand new it was, you know, people just, you know, they didn't know what to expect when they got there and they got a show. Yeah, they did. And it was, it still ranks as one of the very best uh, mm -hmm. because of the fact that you're right. It was no one knew what to expect a, a super big racetrack. And it's very reminiscent of what we're going to see, uh, what you know, of course, in the uh, the 2022 Daytona 500, because I mean, it's it's very new. Uh, again, history repeats itself. But I mean, in the 59 race, the uh, uh, no one knew what to expect in that race, and it was a big track. Big drivers were really terrified of the place, in mm -hmm. all honesty, because mm -hmm. they didn't know how they were going to handle this the speeds, the tires, any of those things. And, uh, of course it comes down to Lee Petty, Johnny Bochamp, uh, and Lee Petty knew immediately that he won the race. Cause he could tell to his left, he could tell that Johnny Bochamp was behind him to his, to his left as, mm -hmm. as he, in his peripheral vision, he could tell he was ahead of him. And so he goes to victory lane the same way Bochamp goes to victory lane and immediately files a protest. And I think, as I said in the opening of the show, I, I really think Bill France knew that, but he's like, well, here's a chance to, you know, build some publicity for this and for the 500 mm -hmm. because, you know, you, you didn't have the interest of the national television broadcast and those types of things very early in the game. And so maybe this was a way to hype it a little bit. That that race though it will always become always be known as one of the greatest because of the circumstances and the fact that you know Lee Petty was already the reigning NASCAR champion he mm -hmm. he was the champion in fifty eight went on to win it in fifty nine as well uh, the championship so yeah he was a top contending driver very uh, hardcore and a man's man kind of guy you know he was well respected in the garage area and. Uh, so, yeah, it was one of the greatest races for sure. Now, one thing that I think some fans, especially the newer fans, maybe over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, maybe um, maybe a little bit more than that. I think there has always been the perception that Daytona 500 was always the first race on the schedule. That's not the case. There were there were several years where it was, I think, as 
second, I think as late as the sixth race, if I remember correctly. Um, tell me about that. I mean, how did that kind of all transpire? Well, the, yeah, for many years, the, the first race was at Riverside, California. Right. right. And the way, I think the reason they did that was because it gave them a chance to, a lot of times NASCAR would let the teams run the last year's car uh, one race to prepare for the 500 because that was their biggest race. So they let the, 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 the most prestigious event be the second race of the year to give them more time to get ready for that race. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times they would let you sort of a run what you brung kind of thing in, at Riverside. And then they, they would allow them to run their best car going into the 500. Yeah. So Riverside was the first, uh, then Daytona second for many years. Right, right. Let's let's talk about some more individual races. 1963, Tiny Lund replaces the injured Marvin Panch. And what does Tiny Lund wind up doing? Well, he ends up winning the 500 for the Wood Brothers. And the way that all came down was uh, Marvin Panch was testing a sports car and got it just got out of control too fast. And he ends up getting burned rather badly in the crash and basically goes uh, – is rescued by Tiny Lund uh, when Tiny flips the car back over, helps get him out. Tiny, you know, he was a big man. He was about six, seven, mm-hmm. uh, 300 pounds, and, but he had the nickname of Tiny. And everybody loved Tiny. He was from Iowa. He had a fish camp in South Carolina. Big, big guy. And, you know, he and Buddy Baker are about the same size, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe six, 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 five. I mean, just really big guy, but loved him, had a heart of a teddy bear, one of those types. Mm-hmm. And so he helps to get Marvin out of the car, lifts the car pretty much by himself, wow. gets him out of the car. And Marvin tells the Wood Brothers, he said, as a gesture of thanks, put him in the car and let him drive the car. Well, he was the end Daytona looking for a ride. He didn't mm-hmm. have a ride that year. Wood Brothers put him in the car. They used duct tape to cover up Marvin's name on the door and writes Tiny Lund or paints Tiny's name on the duct tape. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, they didn't make a pit stop during the 63 500 for tires. Their tires held up throughout their entire race. And as it turns out, he ends up, uh, has good fuel mileage, wins the race in a Cinderella type fashion. Uh, the hero that comes in at the last moment to take the ride, wins the race, that kind of thing. So a very well-received 63-500, and Tiny goes on and, and runs for several other race teams. And sadly, we lost Tiny in 1975 in a crash at Talladega. Mm-hmm. And uh, just very, very sad. I remember that day I was listening to the race on the radio with MRN, and, and Ken Squire was in the booth that day. And before the race ended, very early in the race, actually, they announced that he had passed away from injuries in the crash. He he crashed early in the race on the back stretch, and another driver had hit him in the driver's door. Oh, and uh, yeah, it was a terrible crash. But Tiny was just a very fun-loving sort of guy, and just—I mean, he would ride. He'd drive just virtually anything that came his way. He was a Grand American champion, mm-hmm. I think, three times uh, in the Grand American circuit. Uh, drove for Bud Moore. Drove his own cars in that division. Just very, very good man. And uh, sad that we lost him in 75. So did he actually, fi- I mean, he himself physically actually overturned the car when, when Tiny crashed? I mean, when yeah, Marvin he li- crashed? He, well, I don't know if he lift, uh, turned it over. He lifted it by himself. Wow. That's I mean, amazing. He, 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 was that, he was a strong guy. He might have had some help there, but he was instrumental in move, getting the car up where they could get 
Marvin out from under it because it right. flipped over on its uh, his wheels up and he was on scene in no time and ra- raised the car up without his help he would not have survived wow because wow. he was right on top of uh of getting getting the car up enough where they could get but he just like here i'm here i'm just gonna lift it up you know right 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 that's and amazing. very instrumental in helping to save his life yes right right all right Epi- or, uh, race number three on our list we actually had 10 originally we added one so we have 11 uh, races that stand out the daytona 500 in history and the third race is 1969 Leroy Yarborough, and tell me about uh, the significant achievement he made in that by winning that race. Well, the 69 Daytona 500 was the first. Uh, he was driving for Junior Johnson, a number 98 uh, Ford, and he won the 500 that year. He won the uh, World 600 that year at Charlotte, and he ended up winning the Southern 500. He was the first driver in NASCAR history to win the Triple Crown. And had he done that, uh, you know, in 85, like Bill Elliott did, he would have won the Winston Million. He was the first to do it. Uh, and, of course, there was no bonus back then, but he was the first driver in NASCAR history to do right. that. But he was right. a phenomenal driver, uh, very well loved and respected by other drivers and just uh, an incredible driver uh, and uh, very, you know, very well respected by junior himself he said he's the, probably the best driver he ever had in his cars but uh heard that's, 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 that's a high compliment when junior says that because i mean all the the big name drivers that junior had for him to say that about about uh, leroy is just that's that's massive it is massive yeah and he had he just a tremendous driver and won a lot of races on the super speedways but 69 was a great year for for uh, Leroy, like say, won many super speedway races, but to win Daytona, Charlotte, and the Southern 500 in the same year was was pretty big. Had uh, Herb Nab as his crew chief, and just just a great year for them that year. Right. All right. Now we're going to go into a, a kind of a stretch, if you will, for races. Uh, you know, the, like I said, we had picked 11 races that were the uh, among the biggest races in the Daytona 500 history. We're going to go through a stretch here now where there is. Let's see. We got one, two, three, four, five, six uh, that appeared from 1975 through 1986. And uh, that was kind of like the. I don't know if you want to call it the heyday of the Daytona 500, but I mean, just so many big things happened in that period. And in 1975, we're going to kick it off that 11 race or, well, actually be 12 races, 75 through 86, that'd be 12 races. Um, We're going to kick it off with Benny Parsons, surprise winner in 1975 Daytona 500. Um, David Pearson looked like he had that, that puppy all locked up and guess what? He didn't tell me about that. No, he didn't. And, he was cruising to victory that year in 75 and in the Wood Brothers Mercury and looked like he had it all sewed up. And all of a sudden he got in the draft of someone in the back. I think it was Kale Yarber actually didn't touch Kale on the back stretch, but just got, uh, got in the draft some way and lost it. And I remember watching the race. I was watching on television and I thought, crap, here we go again. Pearson's going to win again. And it's like, oh my gosh, you can't believe it. He just spun out all by himself. He didn't touch it, but he just spun about 9,000 yards on the backstretch and Mm -hmm. spun on by himself. And there's Benny Parsons, uh, an independent sort of driver. LG DeWitt was his team owner, number 72 Chevrolet, (coughs) kind of a mid-pack, not really mid-pack, but I mean, he just wasn't someone that you would think would would be in position to win. And he comes around with a couple of three laps to go. 
And suddenly out of nowhere, Benny Parsons wins the race. Uh, he's got a Waddell Wilson engine in the car. Uh, you know, he's from Ellerby, North Carolina, down just close to Rockingham. I mean, nobody really put Benny Parsons in position to win or thought he could win the Daytona 500. And it's like, again, one of those Cinderella stories, but you didn't ever think David Pearson had spent out by himself either. It's one of those, uh, situations that you think, nah, that's never going to happen. He's too good of a veteran, crafty old David Pearson. No way that could happen. And I, it just, you're just staring at the TV screen. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. <laughs> it's right. And suddenly well, Benny's going to victory lane. And, you know, I, I, I was just in shock. I mean, it was one of those really shocking sports moments, you know, where you think, I just can't believe what I just saw. Benny goes on and wins the 500. It sort of really jacked up his career. Mm-hmm. He went on to drive for LG to win for several years after that, uh, they went to MC Anderson and some other prominent teams with Harry Rainier and others, but, but that really did put his career on the map when he won the 500, of course. And I think Benny was probably one of the most, uh, surprised people in the whole place. You know, suddenly he's out front. He was settling into second place and all of a sudden, I can't believe it. I just won the 500. You know, he even <laughs> said that in victory lane. So yeah, surprising day for sure. Wasn't that race, and I may be wrong on my timeline here, but wasn't that race when Benny Parsons wins the 75 Daytona 500, was it he that said it or maybe somebody else said it and maybe in not exactly the most complimentary of terms, but I seem to think it was Benny that said it, that it was something like, uh, well, it was the old taxi driver from Detroit that winds up winning the race. I remember that very clearly because Benny, you know, did spend quite a bit of time before he, you know, came back south to NASCAR to, to make his, you know, fame and fortune as a race car driver. He was a taxi driver in, in uh, Detroit yeah. for several years. Yeah, he was, and uh, you know, he was an ARCA uh, champion right? back in '69. And before that, I think he, he did drive a taxi cab in Detroit. And that was sort of a moniker that someone had put on to, to, to Benny, uh, that, you know, yeah, he was a taxi, how long he did it. I'm not sure, but it's something one of the reporters put onto him. He was, went from the streets of Detroit as a taxi driver and suddenly he's winning the 500 that sort of came out. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's something that, that Benny kind of played down and, uh, but yeah, sometimes he, I think maybe made mention of it, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was part of his past and now he's doing 200 miles an hour around a racetrack, but once he drove a taxi, you know, one of those deals. Right. Okay. Let's go to 1976. One year after Benny Parsons wins when David Pearson spun on, you know, unexpectedly David Pearson rebounds, if you will. And he winds up winning the Daytona 500, but it wasn't a, um, wasn't an easy win to say the least at all. No, what, it wasn't, you know, the 76 uh, Daytona 500 was it once again came down between David Pierce and Richard Petty. It happened so many times during their careers, you know, 63 times they had finished first and second to one another. Mm-hmm. And 33 of those times had been Pearson, the winner and 30 of those had been Richard. And this particular time they had once again, cat and mouse game between the two great drivers where they come down uh, on the last lap and, you know, they're battling tooth and nail and, and it comes down to, uh, Penny, uh, uh is in second, uh, David's in first and Penny tries to get around him coming off of turn four, but he cuts it just a smidge too short and they get into one another and suddenly they're both spinning towards the start finish line. Again, one of those Benny Parsons type moments that you really right. didn't think 
Right. I, you know, you really thought, okay, this is there's not nothing's going to happen. He's going to win this this five hundred. They spin, but the pre. This is what this. It all came down to one thing: the the presence of mind that Pearson had to push in the clutch. Mm-hmm. Had he not had the presence of mind to do that, they would have both stalled, and the third place car would have been the winner of the race. But at the time, uh, Richard's car stalled, and David's didn't stall. And as it turned out, uh, David won the race at what thirty five miles an hour. But they both crashed uh, coming in off of turn four, and you know, but Pearson got clipped, and and Richard, of course, clipped the wall, and they both crashed. And uh, but the, the funny, one of the funny things that nobody has ever heard before, and, and Eddie Wood told me this story. He said. Uh, well, see if I can put this in a nice way. He said, (laughs) (laughs) he said that David keyed the mic and said, he basically said he hit me, but there was another word in there. I'm not going to (laughs) repeat, but Pearson, Pearson radio to Eddie and said, he hit me. And he was so in shock. I mean, Pearson was, he didn't think, you know, how, why would he do something like that to me? Let's say it this way. He said, I'll just use another word. He said, the dog hit me. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to say the word that he said, but he said, the dog hit me. And so, you know, it's like, okay. And Pearson, you got to understand, Pearson never said anything on the radio. Okay. The way he would do it was Leonard Wood would key on the mic and say, David, how's the car? Oh, it's okay. So, is it loose? Is it tight? What's going on? I said, no, it's okay. He would never <laughs> tell him anything. Because that way he didn't want to, you know, show his hand at the end that he would win the race and he would say, well, how was, how was the car? Oh, it was all right. (laughs) He never went, he didn't want to show his hand to the crew or anybody because that way, if the car was, was really good and he didn't win, they'd say, why did you win? So he never would tell him anything. It drove him crazy. He said, Leonard would tell me, he's told me, he said, it drove me nuts because he would never tell me, is it tight? Is it loose? What do you need? He said, oh, it's all right. I can win with it or whatever. <laughs> he never would tell him anything. So that particular day, it kind of surprised Eddie when he said, the dog hit me. You know, he's like, what? You actually, you're actually telling me something? Really? You know, so it's, it's, uh, he said a little more coarse than that dog word but it was yeah i won't say that exactly yeah but anyway they crashed he comes across the start finish line at 35 miles an hour and he wins the race and so i asked the question where's the car now i said well the guy named blackie wangeran who was a former driver he ended up buying the car Mm -hmm. and repaired it and used it for several years racing it but if it had been me if I'd have had the money, I would have bought the car right out of Victory Lane and I would have put it in some museum somewhere unfixed, just like it was, because yep. that's, that was a great piece of, of NASCAR history. I agree. With you. Somebody agree. has restored the car now and it's up right. in Michigan somewhere, I think. And it's not wrecked, it's just restored. Right, right, right. But I would have just kept it like it was, drained the fluids, put it in a museum. So here it is, just like that. But it did mess up the front end. Exactly. Yeah. All right. We move to race number six of our top 11 Daytona 500s. And again, this is uh, in chronological order. It's not in the order of importance. However, this race, the 1979 Daytona 500, unquestionably the biggest race 
ever in NASCAR history. And there's a lot of elements for that, Ben. I mean, there was TV, there was weather, there was all kinds of things. And, you know, we saw a, a, a great finish uh, and a um, maybe not so great uh, lead up to that finish, you know, with what happened in there. So we got, we got to, we're going to talk about this one for a few minutes, I think. So tell me about that 1979 Daytona 500. Okay, I can sum it up in two words. Uh-oh. Everybody in NASCAR will know what I'm talking about, and I don't have to say anything else. You're not going to say that dog, are you? No, no, I'm not going to say that dog. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to say that dog. I'm going to say two words, the fight. The fight, that's right. And that's if you right. say the fight, everybody knows. And, you know, it's just uh, so, you know, if you wanted a per, I don't know how people come up with this term, but the perfect storm, but it really yeah. was the perfect storm. Yep. Because you had, I I lived in Welcome, North Carolina that night, that night, that, that as this was going on, a quarter mile from where Richard Childress's shops are now. Right. It was 12 to 14 inches of snow. Okay. We don't get that in North Carolina like we <laughs> right. do in Chicago. Okay? Right, this right, is right. Maybe even 24, 2024. I mean, it was a massive, massive snowstorm. Right. And it happened all the way across the East Coast. It was the snowstorm of the century. Nobody could go anywhere. You had three stations, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Didn't have a gazillion 800 channels in those days. All right. You had basketball on one, some lovey-dovey movie on another, <laughs> and you had this, and you had this, the Daytona 500. Now, a million people didn't know a thing about Daytona, the stock car racing, NASCAR, nothing. So you had three choices, a football, I mean, a basketball game, this lovey-dovey movie, and this. <laughs> All right. So everybody's like, oh, what the heck? We'll pop some popcorn, watch this thing called stock car racing. We'll see what happens. Okay. Uh, a very, very condensed version of this. It comes down to uh, the, the weather's iffy in Daytona. They let Daryl Waltrip go out like the rabbit and test the track. Right. He comes back in and says, okay, it's kind of okay. We can race. Uh, so they run these many laps. Early in the race, Donnie Allison, Kale Yarborough, and Bobby Allison all spin out together. And no one has any idea. This is going to come back to, to haunt this broadcast later on in the day. But Richard Petty has stomach surgery a, a week beforehand. His doctors say, do not race. It's detrimental to your health. Do not race. Well, he oh, races wow. anyway. Wow. Yeah. So a week earlier, he had 40% of his stomach removed. Back in an era when you didn't do it like they do today. It was yeah, major right. surgery. Right. And so... <clears throat> Fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. You you have a really good race. You have several, you know, four or five major cautions during this thing. It comes down between Donnie Allison and Kel Yarborough. Donnie's three laps down at one point, gets all his laps back, comes down to Donnie and Kale. And so out of nowhere, they crash on the backstretch. All right. And so third place guy is Richard Petty, the guy who shouldn't be racing, but he's the king. All right. AJ Foyt's in second. And Darrell Waltrip's in third. Darrell gets two second. Suddenly they've crashed. Richard Petty wins this sixth Daytona 500. The greatest, another Cinderella story from Daytona. While the cameras zero in on Donnie and Kale and Bobby fighting on the backstretch. Bobby wasn't even supposed to be there, but he, he stops to give Donnie a ride back to the garage. Mm-hmm. Well, Bobby and Kale you know, get into it. And Bobby's sitting in his car. And I heard this directly from Bobby. I'm sitting in my car. Kale walks over and says, if you un- 
happy words and hits him, <laughs> hits him with his helmet through the driver's screen, you know, the window net. Right. And he told me, he said, either I can address, get out and address this right now or run from little old Kale Yarborough for the rest of my life. So Bobby gets out and it's really between Bobby and Kale, not Donnie and Kale. Mm-hmm. So now CBS is trained on this. All the NASCAR officials are uh, holy cow. This is not what we wanted on our first national television broadcast. So they're right. freaking out. And well, as it turned out, everybody's like the next day at work, everywhere else in the country, like, man, did you see that great fight? Yes, you yep. got that stock car race. Yep. yep, yep. You know, so what turned out to be a, what they thought was going to be a negative turned out to be a real positive. So Bill France Jr. is sitting down in Daytona is like, well, hold the phone here. This might be really good for us. And as it turned out, they find all the drivers, but their NASCAR is sort of thinking, hmm, this, you know, this turned out okay for us. It wasn't supposed to happen, but it turned out okay. Right. So in essence, in a nutshell, what happened was the fight, even what, 40 years later, is still talked about, written about, discussed. And all three of those guys, Kale, Donnie, and Bobby still say NASCAR should be paying us money, yeah. <laughs> you know, for, for bringing all these millions of people in because it just hey. happened. It was hot tempers. It was over quicker than it started, you know, one of those deals, but it's been written about uh, hundreds of times. And even I've written about it, but it just happened. And right. Right. the snow, the Cinderella finish, the fight. And it brought millions of people into NASCAR's fold and they stayed for fans for 40 years. And that was also, and when you mentioned being a national TV, I believe that was the first live national TV race we've ever seen. Am I correct on that? Well, they're almost correct. 1971, they showed ABC sports showed a live uh, 200 lap race from Greenville Pickens speedway won by Bobby Isaac. Okay. The problem was, NASCAR said, behave yourselves, and they behaved themselves so well, it was the most boring race in NASCAR history. <laughs> they, they, didn't, they didn't spin. They had one spin, a half a spin, and all the drivers, were they, they were driving like they were on the interstate, mm-hmm. and it was just not well-received, and they were so scared to mess up that they, it wasn't well-received, and Bobby Isaac cruised to a, a win of 71.845 miles an hour, and it wasn't that great. This was the first super speedway, if you want to say it that way. Right, right, right. But first live to live, live. But no, it's it's people say it was the first live coverage race, but really no. Okay. But okay. it's the first super. If you want to say first super speedway race, uh, I think you'd be accurate. Okay. All right. Let's get to race number seven on our list. Two years later, 1981, another. Big one for the King Richard Petty. Uh, not only did well, I'm going to let you. I'm not going to steal your thunder. Let's tell us. Tell me about the, the 1981 Daytona 500 uh, race that was won by Richard Petty. Big, big race for him, both on and off the racetrack. Yeah, it, it was. This was not as as glorious, I guess, as '79. But just the fact he won his seventh Daytona 500. Uh, he did it with with the brilliance of the crew chief Dale Inman. On the final pit stop, uh, Bobby Allison ran out of fuel uh, for in his Harry Rainier Pontiac. And that was another little side story, too. We've discussed this on the podcast before. That was the year that Davy Allison discovered the Pontiac Le Mans. No one else discovered it. It was in the record or the uh, rule book, excuse me. 
and they took a Pontiac Le Mans to Daytona and everybody flipped out because it's like, it was too good. Uh, and Bobby won everything down there that year because the car was so aerodynamic, but nobody else saw it in the, in the uh, rule book. Mm-hmm. And so it was legal, but over the next five, six weeks, NASCAR basically legislated it out because it was too good of a race car and through the rules and this and that they made it to where he had to stop driving it, even though in 80, 82 and 83, the car was still used, but they made some adjustments to the rule book and eventually by 84, it was gone. Mm -hmm. But initially they made it to where it was non-competitive. But, but initially in the Daytona 500, it was the car to beat. It was the great, great, great car. But that particular Mm -hmm. race, he ran out of fuel with it. Uh, by uh, Richard Petty comes in on his final pit stop. They did not change tires. They just got fuel only. And Richard goes on and wins this, his seventh Daytona 581. And just a brilliant piece of strategy as far as the final pit stop for crew chief Dale Inman, who, by the way, is the only crew chief to win eight championships yep. in NASCAR history. He got one with Terry Labonte and seven with Richard. Right. So just, just a great race uh, to see. Richard Petty wins seven championships. And oh, not, uh, and seven Daytona 500s. I meant to say, but he also did win seven championships. That's right. That's right. And not only that, he had a very um, big witness to that race. He visited the press box, and eventually Richard uh, saw him after the race. And that was uh, a guy that, um, uh, how do I say this? Um, he, he ventured south from a little White House, you might say. Uh, okay. Ronald Reagan, the president. Well, that came in 84. Oh, it was 84? I thought that was 81. No, it, it was the July, July Firecracker 484 when he won his 200th. I, but, oh, gosh, my gosh. Let me wipe the egg off my face on that one. I swore that Reagan was at the 81, the Daytona 500. But, okay, well, let's, we'll, we'll scratch that part. Forget that one, part, folks. <laughs> yeah. you, you didn't hear that last, uh, last uh, minute uh, how, does, how do they say it in court? Uh, we'll strike it off the record. There we go. So, <laughs> all right, yeah. let's go to the next race, the next big race, 85. Bill Elliott, big one for him. Let's talk yeah, about that. Yeah, that was just the beginning of the Winston Million win for him. You know, everybody said, and I, let me back up, December 84, R.J. Reynolds, uh, Jerry Long, president of uh, R.J. Reynolds, said anybody that can win the big three, that we talked about prior, you know, and, and by the way, David Pearson also won the big three in 1976 that year uh, when he won the 500 uh, and Leroy Arbor did it in 69. Anybody in 85 who could win the Daytona 500, the Winston 500 at Talladega, uh, the Coca-Cola 600 and the Southern 500 would get a million dollars. If you could win three of those, then you could get the million. Well, this was the beginning of, Del, of Bill Elliott's great run that year. He did win the 500. Uh, he did win the Winston 500. He didn't win at Charlotte because of brake issues, but then he did come back and win the Southern 500 and he won the million. And that was just phenomenal for the Elliots to do it and, and win the million and all the pressure that they went through. But it all started with the Daytona 500 victory that year and, and uh just had a phenomenal 1985 season. So I'll started with the Daytona 500 win. Okay. 19, <clears throat> excuse me. Number nine on our list, 1986. If there had ever been a race that 
I think folks thought Dale Earnhardt Sr. was going to win the Daytona 500. It was going to be that year. But once again, fate was not in his uh, in his corner. Tell us about 1986, the Daytona, Daytona 500, and how Dale Earnhardt did not win that race again. Yeah, it, it came down to a final pit stop, and uh, he, he actually overshot his pit and went down about three pits to, uh, not that far, maybe two pits too, too far, and they had to chase him. His crew did to get, uh, you know, some fuel in the car. And of course it was too far to maybe put some tires on it and had to back him up a little bit. In other words, in other words he just lost a lot of time on that pit stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff Bodine ended up winning, uh, the race that year, but it, every, everything was going in Dale's favor. He had such a strong car. And as it turned out, something happened to the engine, uh, after I think he stalled the engine, uh, trying to get out of the pits and trying to back it up. Something happened and he basically just had to go and in a low gear all the way uh, around the track for the final laps. Something again happened. It, you know, throughout his career, he tried so hard to win the 500 and 86 was supposed to be it. And again, fell short. And I remember Richard Childress saying, you know, every year he'd say, here's Richard or here's uh, Dale and in the lead and, or he's in striking distance to win the 500 and you go to Richard Childress and they said, what do you think, Richard? He said, we've been here before. (laughs) (laughs) We've been here before. And so he would never commit. And every time, you know, something would happen and he just never had any real excitement on his face. Richard didn't because we've been here before. So again, 86 was one of those years. Do do you buy into the seer, into the theory, Ben, that, um, Dale senior, um, was a little bit snake bitten in that race because every time that he came close, he came up short. And as each race morphed into the next one, to the next one, to the next one, it would also, you know, morph into the came up close, came up short, came up close, came up short. Um, Mm -hmm. do you ever, did you really, do you buy into that theory that maybe, did I mean I, I just can't imagine a guy like Earnhardt who was such a you know a, a, a man's man a macho man I can't see him being affected by you know uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, you know happenstance or you know uh, he was you know he just it, it was not I, I can't think of the word I'm, there's a word I'm thinking of and I just can't think of it but um, he was he was just you know snake bit i mean do you buy into that at all well you know and i guess it's a good way to lead into the to the next one we're going to talk about right, exactly. 1998 and right i mean you think about it uh he was so close so many times and i i think about 1990 um the, the year that i guess it was 93 when he hit the seagull yeah, right, he was right, right, he was right, going right. down the back stretch. It's about right. ten laps into the race, and he hits a seagull. Who who does that? Yep, yep. I mean, how does that ever happen? And uh, uh, and oh, excuse me, I think it was ninety four when he it was ninety four. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. But it. it you know it was that, and then it was uh, so many times when he was in the lead, and somebody would pass him with two to go. He ran out of fuel. Um, I mean, so many things would go wrong. It's like, what else could happen? He cut a tire in 1990 with and Derek Cope. Derek Cope, of all people. Yeah. I mean, ends up yep. winning the race. No disrespect to Derek, but right. I mean, he knew he had a great car that year, but I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think even Derek even, I mean, he, he did tell me once he said, I really thought I had a good shot at winning the race, but I think everybody in the stands and 
the media didn't really think Derek had a good shot at winning the race, but he ended up winning it. Congrats to Derek. But it just seemed like everything would go wrong every year uh, for Darren Earnhardt until 1998 when he mm-hmm. wins the 500. Everything just come together that year for him. And it haunted Dale so many years because it's like, you know, I could win seven championships and I could win 76 races and I could do all these things, but I cannot put my hands on a Daytona 500 trophy. Mm-hmm. And, but you know, you look at Daryl Waltrip in 1989, it was sort of the same thing until, you know, he gets to the 79 race and, or excuse me, the 89 race. And he gets to suddenly they start looking at the numbers for, for Daryl 17th try 17th car number 17th garage saw his daughter's name's got 17 <laughs> letters, you know, it added up. And there's so many things, uh, his, his house is built on the 17th lot, uh, everything 17, 17, 17. And, and it, he said, either we're going to win it or we're going to finish 17th. You know, so that that's another example. So in Dale's case, it just happened to come together in 1998 for whatever reason. The good Lord smiled upon him that, that day, and it all happened. But that haunted him badly. I mean, he was so angry about it to himself. It's like, I don't want to, you know, it's almost like nothing else matters. That's how yep. big the state total 500 victory is to me. I don't want to go away from NASCAR and retire from NASCAR knowing that I didn't win it. I, I can't believe that I can't. So that was a big relief for him to win in 1998 and finally put that in the record books. But man, I mean, just that haunted him. I mean, it was really bugged him. I can imagine that exactly. You're right. And you know, the, the one thing about, uh, um, Earnhardt is that he wasn't, um, he was not a bad or unsuccessful driver at Daytona. It just was in the 500 because he won two other times in the cup series, um, you know, at Daytona. And, and that was, those were the summer races uh-huh. in, in the Xfinity series. Um, let's see here. He won. Let me see here. I just had it here and I just lost it seven times in the Xfinity series in, in the 13 starts. So, you know, that's nine races right there. Plus the Daytona 500, that's 10 times he won Daytona, but you know, only one was the Daytona 500. The other ones were either, you know, the two uh, cup races in the summer uh, in Daytona or the seven Xfinity races that he uh, competed in there. So it, it's, it, you're right. I mean, it, it was just, um, he, he just had that, I don't know, it, 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 and I can't come up with the right word. I, mean, I know there's a word out there. I just can't come up with the right word. Though, yeah. So. But yeah, I think, I think the number, and I could be wrong. I'm, I'm sorry, but I could be wrong. I think it's, 34 times he won at Daytona in something. Whether That's right. Iraq, right. 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 Whether it was qualified races, <laughs> whether it was Bush series or Xfinity series. I mean, whatever. It was 34 times, but he could never get the 500 until 98. And it was just, I mean, you. it was almost like uh, the greatest accomplishment in his life. And you could look at photos of him in Victory Lane of how it seemed like a million pounds was off each shoulder. Uh, standing on top of the car and doing interviews. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I was there in 98 that day. And it just, I don't know. The man was just so relieved that that monkey was off his back. Just finally off him that it was finally his. And he finally, he, I remember him saying, we want it. We want it. We want it. We want it. I mean, it was just something like, I can't believe this is finally off of me because it was, he was so close to getting it. You can imagine 
uh, just the grief he must have felt, you know, flying on airplanes back to North Carolina or driving back or just feeling like that was so, uh, so frustrating, yep. you know, knowing that it was so close to that prize and he just couldn't get it. Exactly. Well, you know, I'm looking at racing reference as we're speaking, and he did win 12 times in the Daytona 500 qualifying races, but he just could never get it done until that one win in 98. And that was unfortunately the only win that he had in the Daytona 500. And then, of course, you know, sadly, we and tragically, we lost him three years later uh, in the 2001 Daytona 500. But I guess, you know, Ben, I want to wrap up the the top 11 Daytona 500s uh, in history uh, with another Earnhardt, and that's Dale Earnhardt, um, who won his, you know, he, he did come back in the J- uh, July race in 2001, you know, five months after his father tragically was killed, and he did win the summer race there, but then he came back in 2004, and he won the Daytona 500, the first of two races, or two times he's won the Daytona 500. He also won in 2014, and I've got a hell of a story to tell you about that one, the 2014 race. But 2004, when Junior won that race, I mean, that was such a, a monumental uh, event because I don't think there was a dry eye in the, in the place. I really, I mean, you know, it was, there was so much shock after Earnhardt was killed, Dale Sr. was killed in 2001. But, you know, and in, in, when Junior won in, in the summer race, yes, there was a lot of, you know, uh, 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 crying and, and tears and uh, of joy and that kind of thing. But when he won the Daytona 500, it was a whole different ballgame when he won it in 2004. I mean, everybody, um, you know, came over to congratulate him. Very much, very similar, not, not in the car, but... Um, one thing we didn't mention about the 98 uh, Daytona 500 when his father won was how every single team in that race went on to pit road to congratulate him. They all came up to the car and, you know, uh, patted him on the back or, you know, shook his hand and that kind of thing. And that was kind of the same thing when Dale C- uh, Jr. won the 2004 Daytona 500. All the, the various teams, they didn't get him on victory or on, uh, on pit road, but they came you know, into his pits or, you know, after the race. Everybody to the man came over and congratulated him. And that, you know, that to me, I was at that race and I, I still to this day get chills at the emotion because it was so raw. Yes, it had been, you know, three years since we had lost Dale Sr., but the, the emotion, the, uh, the achievement that Dale Jr. had, you know, uh, been able to accomplish, it was just, it was a race that really stood out in my mind. Oh, yeah, it was. And I remember standing in the press box that day, just watching all those crew guys come out. And, you know, that was, that said so much, they were competitors against the three car, but once he took that checkered flag, they were just everyone out there to line up and, and yes. say, you know, we're proud of you and, and we admire you. You finally did it. And it's, you know, that's the one thing about NASCAR. Uh, they're all competitors, but the minute you need help or the minute that you've done something really cool, they're, they're out there because they all work hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this business to, to make it all happen. And we're all family. I mean, you and our family, everybody in the sports family, and you believe me, if you need something in a hurry or you know, you've got a problem and you need somebody, they're there to help you out. And if you've done something really cool, they're there to congratulate you too. Cause we're all in the same boat here and we all love each other and care for one another. And that was a really cool thing to see 
I, in my lifetime, I'd never seen that kind of thing happen before and could not have asked for a better day. You know, it brings back really great memories for me to, to see how that came down and, and, uh, just, just a wonderful Daytona 500 all the way around to see that three car go to victory lane. We're not supposed to, I know we're not supposed to pull for anybody, but I got to admit made, made the heart feel good that day to see him win it. Exactly. And, you know, excuse me, the one thing that, uh, you know, the other uh, Daytona 500 that Dale Jr. won was 2014. And that was, that was one of the most unusual races I think we have ever seen in NASCAR. I mean, you know, just um, how he wound up winning and we, know, we didn't get out of that place. I remember I didn't get out of um, uh, the media center it was, I think, like 5.30, quarter to 6 in the morning because it was, you know, because the race had not finished until, God, I think it ended like a while, 12.31, and and I just, and wasn't that the race, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't that the race also that Junior finally got onto social media for the first time? I seem to recall that being the case. Uh, I think you're right. I'm not 100% sure, but I do know what it feels like to get out a race ending at midnight and you're not out of there until six in the morning yeah. or something. I, I know that because you got to go through all the interviews and uh, then you got to cipher through the interviews and then you got to, then you got to write it. So yeah, it, it can be some, but, but it's fun. It's fun to be there. That's right. Well, I'm going to tell you a, a quick story about that race. Um, so we get out of there. I get out of there about 5 in the morning and, and the sun would, you know, the, surprisingly the sun had not, come up as high as I thought it would would have done at that time. And I was staying in a very, um, let's just say a low rent motel in Port Orange, but to its credit, it was actually a very nice place. I mean, the guy, the owner of the place was nice. We, we talked for a long time, got to know him, really nice place. But here's the, here's the interesting thing. And this is a story that still to this day haunts me. It really, really does. So I get out of uh, you know Daytona International Speedway. I stopped at a 7-Eleven. I, I I don't remember if it was on International uh, or if it was on Speedway Boulevard where where it was. It was it was somewhere near the track. So I picked up um, a little carton of milk and a honey bun. Okay, I'm just putting this in for color. Okay, right. so I'm driving to the hotel. I get to this traffic light, and all of a sudden I hear pop, 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 pop. And I mean, I, as you know, I had a long history in law enforcement. So when I hear gunshots, I know what they sound like. And it turned out that there was a two cars um, that were to the, I guess I'm going south. So it's able to be to the left of me. They started firing at each other and they both took off heading, uh, I guess it would have been eastbound on the same road. I can't remember what the name of the road is, but it was in Port Orange and they were still shooting at each other and that scared the absolute, you know, what out of me. And, you know, I was still a cop at that time too. So I get on the, the phone, I call 911 and to their credit, I mean, Daytona came, um, Volusia County came to sheriff's office, uh, poor orange came. They, I don't know if you ever got the guys, but I mean, if you ever think that you're tired and you're on your way back to your hotel and you're just like, you know, you can't wait to get in your bed. Believe me, that woke me up. I couldn't go back to sleep until like nine o'clock and I had to be at Disney World like two hours later. I think I may, I may have oh, gotten man. two hours of sleep. So that race in particular just always stands out for me because it was it's one of the better stories I have, although the circumstances weren't that great because, you know, 
if it, you know, but, but be for the grace of God, one of those bullets could have, you know, found its way into my car and it could have. Yeah. Well, and, I, and I did see the muzzle flashes too. Cause you know, I heard the first pop and then or actually the first two pops. And then I look to my left and then I see the other three and I go, Holy mackerel. And, you know, they were coming at me at that point, you know, they were going across my way. So I couldn't even get it to go through the light. And then I did go, I gunned it, but then I called the police right away as I'm driving. And I went maybe two blocks and then turned around and, you know, came back and gave them my statement and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that, that, uh, that race, that junior one is second day, 2500 will, will always be reminiscent to me, not only because of, you know, him winning the race so late in the, in that evening, but you know, what happened that I had to go through as well too. Well, it's too bad it wasn't called the Bud Shootout. <laughs> that way, you would have really remembered it. Oh, you got that! I'm sorry. You, you I'm sorry. I'm not trying to make light of your situation, but I had to say something funny there. I liked it. I liked it. That was good. I really liked that. So, but all right, we we, we have gone so far to, over today, and and thank you all for you know staying with us, and because we've had such fun talking about this, but we still have two of our. Uh, as we like to call them departments. So we want to finish up the show with, we have the driver of the week and we have the track of the week and the driver of the week. Uh, you may not have heard that much about him, but the track of the week you did. So Ben, the floor is yours. Tell us about the driver of the week and the track of the week. Well, I'm going to go track of the week first, I guess, because it's a track we've talked about before. Not really a track. It's more like asphalt and sand, right? but very significant in the area there before the Daytona International Speedway was built. One of my favorites is the beach and road course there in Daytona. And a little bit of background, it was partly A1A and partly the, the beach itself. And uh, for many years before the uh, before the track was built in 1959, uh, the Bill France Sr. founder of NASCAR would stage races there on the beach. And you just had to be, uh, had to really honor the time frame because the, the, uh, high tide would come in and ruin your Sunday afternoon. But, uh, yeah, the last winner of the races there on the beach was, uh, Paul Goldsmith. And that was in 1958. He was driving a car for, uh, team, team owner, Smokey Eunuch. And then they moved the next year, next February to, uh, to Daytona international speedway. But yeah, it was just a unique track because, uh, I think four miles in length and three, I think three miles in length in some, some races there, but yeah, it would just, you had sand on one side and then you had asphalt on the other side and, and the, uh, the old North turn restaurant, I think is still there. Yep. yep. Uh, and, uh, but it was just a unique place to race because, uh, you had to really set your car up for sand and you had to set your car up for to, to race on the asphalt and it, just a, a unique place to start uh, a lot of land records, speed records were set there long before NASCAR was even thought about back in the twenties and thirties. And, uh, so it was just a place to race. And of course the, uh, city council there and, and, uh, Daytona beach loved it because it brought fans in. And one of the funny stories was that, uh, a way that Bill France senior was able to keep people from, not from, uh, jumping the fences and, and making sure they came through to pay for their tickets was he put up signs there that said beware of rattlesnakes and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty clever way of keeping people from jumping through the bushes and uh so i don't know if there's rattlesnakes there or not but uh, he thought it was a pretty clever way to keep everybody from uh you know not you know making sure they pay for their tickets so anyway uh great great races there and a lot of careers began and they, i guess ended there but you had to be careful and make sure that you raced uh, 
at a certain time of day, or you you'd have a, a washout uh, from the beach. Exactly. And of course, Lenny Pond, uh, you'd mentioned about him as the driver of the week. Yeah. Driver of the week, Lenny Pond, the great racer uh, from, uh, from Virginia. Uh, we lost him a couple of years ago, sadly, but yeah, he was an independent driver. Number 54 was his car. And there was a TV show on many years back, I think in the, in the late fifties, uh, it was called car 54. Where are you? Oh yeah. So, yes. Yes. That? Yes. And, uh, he used to kid around about the, the TV show, but his car number was 54. And, uh, his only victory was at Talladega in 1978. He was driving for Harry Rainier, uh, as his team owner and when incorporated was the team, uh, one of the most fierce Talladega races I've ever seen, but he came out the winner of that race and, Continued to race. He drove uh, in relief for Richard Petty several times in the Southern 500 at Darlington. A great gentleman, and uh, we lost Lenny to cancer a couple of years ago. But uh, just a lot of lot of uh, great competitive races that Lenny drove, and just I remember him when I was quite a bit younger uh, running. He had a, a gold number 54 uh, race car, and then when he retired from driving, he worked at a car dealership. Mm-hmm. I believe in Chester, Virginia, if I'm telling that right. But anyway, he, he sold cars after that. Very successful as a car car salesman, but uh, super nice guy. Loved Lenny. Right, right. You, I'm going to close with two things. You mentioned, yeah, I have to make a comment on this. this. I know I'm going to show my age again, but when you said Car 54, that where are you? And that was such a great show back in the early 60s. And, yeah. um, you know, Ed Gwynn, uh, was one of the stars that who eventually became Herman Munster. And, yeah. and, and, and he, he was, um, it was him. And uh, what was the other guy's name? Um, oh, uh, was it Joey, Joey Lawrence? I think it was, if I remember correctly, I think that's what his name was, but um, it was Muldoon and um, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank now. Um, but I, I still remember that that show was just, uh, you know, it was Joey Ross. That's right. Joey Ross was the guy. And uh-huh. uh, he oh, yeah, still remember that thing. And the other thing, too, is going back to the beach, uh, Daytona Beach and Road Course. You know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we started talking about the um, the Bush, cl- uh, the Bud Light Clash, rather, at, uh, at uh, Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. I would I would. OK, I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb here. I will give one hundred dollars. I'm going to be a big, I'm going to be a big spender here. I am going to give one hundred dollars to the municipality that can put together a beach and road course race or you know a street race in their backyard somewhere there's got to be some place where you know there's a beach that can also have a you know a road adjacent to it i'll give a hundred bucks to any town that says we want to do a nascar race on our beach and our asphalt you know road that's alongside of it because i would i mean you know that was before my time unfortunately and i would just absolutely love to see a race like that so maybe we can build something maybe we can do like a gofundme and, and start raising <laughs> some money I, I would love to see that you know yeah me too and i'll 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 put up 100 bucks to buy the popcorn <laughs> <laughs> all right with that one hell of a show we just had a lifetime in nascar podcast as always my good buddy ben white over there and i'm jerry benkowski and i'll tell you this was just really fun and to start off the second 
50 episodes because we had episode number 50 last week. So, so start off episode 51, the next 50 episodes. What better way to do it uh, for the Daytona 500? So everyone, we hope you have a great time watching that race. I still haven't made a pick. I'll probably pick make my, make my pick probably Thursday or Friday, but I can, I can guarantee you this. If the weather is good, we're going to have a, a tremendous race. I can't wait to see the new next-gen car actually on a super speedway. We saw it at the Bud Light Clash, but I think that you know this could be a race that is going to be one. You know, we talked about the 11 top races that we picked in history. I think this could be race number 12. It's one of the top 12 uh, races in NASCAR Daytona 500 history. So, so for my, ben, my friend Ben White over there, I'm Jerry Benkowski. Thanks for listening to Lifetime and NASCAR Podcast. Take care, everyone. Have a good week, and we'll talk to you next week right here on the Lifetime and NASCAR Podcast. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.